0: When you can realize that people are really angry, maybe they have good reasons to be angry.
1: Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us.
2: Being active is more important than ever, and that's why I am excited to introduce On, perhaps the best-kept secret in the running world. I love these shoes. I have been buying them for four years, and I don't buy anything else. They were founded in 2010 in Zurich, Switzerland, and it's the fastest-growing running brand globally. Their philosophy is that you should run how you were born to run. Instead of correcting your movement, On shoes react to your individual running motion. As I said, I love these shoes. I use them for trail running, for all uh, running on the streets, and just day-to-day wear. They are amazing. And On is offering our listeners an exclusive offer. Try the shoes or gear for up to 30 days commitment free. Head to on-running.com slash feed and pick your favorite shoes and apparel items apply the code try at checkout to test your new products for 30 days love them keep them not convinced send them back for a full refund that's on dash running slash feed and the promo code is try
1: thanks for joining us Our guest on this episode is Sensei Koshin Paley-Ellison, who co-founded the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care, which delivers contemplative approaches to care through education, direct service, and meditation practice. Koshin is the co-editor of Awake at the Bedside, contemplative teachings on palliative and end-of-life care. He received his clinical training in Mount Sinai Beth Israel Medical Center and the Jungian Psychoanalytic Association. He began his formal Zen training in 1987. Koshin is a senior Zen monk, Soto Zen teacher, and Jungian psychotherapist, Wolf. Hey everybody, a couple quick things. One is,
2: by the time you listen to this, we will have celebrated our third anniversary. So three years of doing this show with a new episode every single week. So thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Secondly, I wanted to give more details on the One You Feed group coaching program. The program will be limited to 10 people per group, We'll meet virtually once a week. The first part of it will be some education and teaching from me, and then the second part will be questions from you. The group is focused around making a change in your behavior, specifically starting a new behavior. So if you're hoping to exercise more in the new year, if you're hoping to eat better, if you want to start a meditation practice or spend more time with your children or whatever the behavior is that you want to start this year, it will ensure that the changes you're making become a part of your life and stick and don't fall off like a lot of New Year's resolutions do the program is $100. In addition to the formal part of the course where I am uh, talking with you guys, we're also going to do some things where we pair people up as accountability partners that you can get some help in keeping these behaviors going. So this is a great chance for you to start a new behavior and make sure that it sticks through the new year. Just send me an email, eric at oneufeed.net, and we will talk with you a little bit more and get you signed up. So hope to talk with you soon. Bye. And here's the interview with Koshin Paley-Ellison. Hi, Koshin. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to have you on. You are the editor of a new book that came out called Awake at the Bedside, Contemplative Teachings on Palliative and End-of-Life Care. And so we're going to spend a good portion of this interview kind of talking about your experience taking care of the dying and how your Zen practice has influenced that and vice versa. But let's start like we normally do with the parable. There's a grandfather who's talking with his grandson. He says, in life, there's a great battle that goes on inside of all of us between two wolves. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops and he thinks about it for a second and looks up at his grandfather. And he says, well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed So, I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do.
0: Well, I love this parable very much. And I think that for me, what's most moving about it is the grandfather and the grandparents spending time teaching the grandchild. Yeah. And, you know, almost more than the parable itself the value of spending time together and really using that time to pass on what is helpful and of use. So it's so moving to me to, before we even get to the wolves, just the setting of the parable for me is the heart of what is so missing in many of our relationships. That, you know, there's a incredible epidemic of isolation and loneliness in our culture now that is, you know, has these morbidity rates that are being shown in these new studies about that basically it's more unhealthy than smoking and overeating. You know, they're finding that people's loneliness. So the story of the tenderness between the grandfather and the grandchild to me is, tells of a, a different kind of relationship that is possible and is necessary. And to me, in that relationship itself is feeding the wolf of tenderness and compassion. So those are my first thoughts.
2: Well, it's interesting that that's what you targeted on because your journey into you know what you do really was because of your grandma right Yes. do you want to tell us a little bit about that i think it's a great place to sort of frame the conversation or to start the conversation
0: sure you know my grandmother was a hungarian jewish lady and who had her parents had immigrated here early in the century and i didn't know her that well until actually i moved to brooklyn where she lived And we spent a lot of time together. And when my grandfather died, I, you know, there was a lot of pressure from my aunt, Carol, and my father to move from Brooklyn to where they were living and move into an assisted living. And my grandmother was this incredibly vibrant woman and was working as an office manager for a very busy law firm at the time when she was 82 and loved it more than anything, and she was beloved at the law firm. So when she was getting all this pressure from her children, who loved her very much, and very much a thing of our culture that, you know, someone's older, so they should be in assisted living, she didn't want to do that. She wanted to live where she had lived her whole life, with the beauty parlor, and the local diner, and her neighbors, and her friends, and She really was so embedded in the community, and she couldn't even imagine giving that up. And so she and I made a pact to take care of each other. And uh, I would look after her, and she would look after me. And it was really the first time that I had made that kind of commitment to someone. And really realizing that this is it for the long haul and we're going to be completely there for each other. And so it was extraordinary. Um, things happened, you know, from mostly just spending time with her to grocery shopping to doctor's visits to, you know, emergency late night rides and ambulances to the hospital to pneumonia in the hospital to, finally moving in with her into the hospice where she and I stayed for the last six weeks of her life. Um, It was a time of talking about storytelling, of her telling stories of her own life and what she's learned. And in particular, I think, you know, one story that probably changed my life more than any other is that, you know, one night she woke me up in bed and was crying and I said, grandma, what's wrong? And she said, Oh, you know, I'm so ashamed of myself. And I said, why? And she said, well, I realized that I didn't fully love you. And I said, what do you mean by that? And she said, Well, there are parts of you, that Buddhist thing, that Zen thing, really scared me, and I never really understood it. And I realized that a part of my heart contracted from you. And I'm so sorry, because I can't believe it took me 87 years. But to truly love someone is to love all the things about them, even the things you don't understand or like. And I realized too that I was not very curious about it. And that, that way I also wasn't curious about what was most important to you. And for that I also I'm sorry. So that, you know, was one of the most incredible teachings that stays with me every day. You know, where am I contracting, you know, from fully loving where I am. Because it's so easy, I think, to pull away from what you don't like. And what's challenging and what is the adventure is when you go towards and with curiosity and investigating.
2: Yeah, a lot of what I have seen of you in interviews or various snippets here and there, you talk a lot about how much our ideas and our opinions and our preferences get us into trouble or take us away from from intimacy with people. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that and maybe some examples?
0: Yeah, I would say it's the heart of, you know, these are not certainly my ideas, they're my experience, but, you know, Shakyamuni, Mani Buddha, the historical Buddha, was very clear that we get into trouble because of our aversion, right? Okay. And we're we aversive to things. So if you're a person, you have aversion, right? Yep. And... In my experience that, for example, I used to not think of myself as a very sad person and also not thinking of myself as an angry person. And I always wanted to be a nice person and to be liked uh-huh. and to be pleasing. And I realized that I had relegated myself into a little itty bitty room that <laughs> uh-huh. I was not fully living. And so when I had been practicing Zen practice for about, I don't know, 15 years or so, I started volunteering um, and doing chaplaincy training after my grandmother died.
2: Uh-huh.
0: And that's where I really saw my preferences really at work in my habits. Like the kind of people that I would want to go see or the people I would spend more time with. And for example, I really found that I, anyone who was kind of angry, I avoided. And yeah, it was a huge learning for me to realize that it was my own anger and my own frustrations and my own, you know, murderous feelings that we actually, we just all have, you know, it doesn't mean we act them out, right? hmm But to really learn how to do that, and I'll tell you a brief story about i got so into really investigating anger and letting my patients in the hospital teach me about anger and what um, anger is about, that I became the person that the team would send to really angry people, (laughs) (laughs) which is so ironic for the person who identified as not angry. Right. And this one woman, they found very difficult. Um, This is on inpatient oncology floor, and that she was not following medical advice. And she was throwing things at people and cursing at them. And they said, oh, Kosha, maybe you should go see her. That would be good. And so I went into the room to see her. And immediately, she's you know, swearing at me and throwing things like that little (laughs) kidney-shaped thing that they have. Sounds like the
2: way Chris uh... (laughs) (laughs) is
0: And, you know, even throwing her own pillows, so she didn't even have pillows. And so I was dodging them very lightly. And then I just stayed there. And she said, well, what are you still doing here? And I said, well, I'm so curious about why you're angry. And she said she paused for a moment and said, really? And I said, yeah, can I sit down? And I would love for you to tell me about how you are so angry. And so I sat down and she began to tell me the story about how she had taken care of her two parents. One had Alzheimer's and the other one had Parkinson's. Early onset, both of them. And for 20 years, she had taken care of them in her home. And within the past year of when I met her, both of them had died and she felt like that was the beginning of her life. She's now in her late forties and ready to live. And she was diagnosed within a year of stage four ovarian cancer that had metastasized all over her body and her bones, And she was so pissed and it was so normal so to me the beauty is when you can realize that the people are really angry maybe they have good reasons to be angry and if we can just hear them if we can hear ourselves and to not get caught by the feeling but to be curious about the feeling so like learning how to feel the feeling without becoming the feeling
2: We'll The world is changing faster and faster today, and there's so much uncertainty. And one of the skills that we need to deal with it is to be able to learn things quickly. And the best way I've found to do that is Blinkist. Blinkist is a unique and powerful app that works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. And basically what they do is give you the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from over 3,000 non-fiction bestsellers. They can Dense them down into blinks, which you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes. I've found it really helpful for me over the last few weeks to really get up to speed a lot more on racial issues in this country. They've got a ton of great books out there that you can look at, like The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo and so many more. And now they've got a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com wolf to start your free 7-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist Premium Membership and up to 65% off audiobooks that are yours to keep forever. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com wolf, to get 25% off a premium membership and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash Wolf.
3: The people who drive industries, entertainment, and culture shape our world every day in bold and dramatic ways. But did you ever wonder how they got there? Behind the Talent features in-depth conversations with people who identify and develop talent, the people who find the people that shape our world. Guests include big league sports scouts, rock star talent agents, and CIA officers. Uncovering the skills and challenges that unite them all is the job of host David Mead. He's an expert speaker and educator, and he brings his own curiosity and insights to each interview to expand our understanding of what it means to be a recruiter in today's world of work. Brought to you by Indeed.com. Behind the Talent is a must listen for anyone interested in the secrets behind identifying talent and unlocking potential in individuals and organizations. Subscribe to Behind the Talent now, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I think that's really interesting, the listening to the angry person. With some people, that tends to help them, and it seems with other people, it seems like the the litany of anger is sort of endless. Is your perspective just they can be angry as long as they want to be angry, and my job isn't to change that?
0: Well, my job is definitely not to change anyone. And, you know, that, that's as a chaplain or as a Zen teacher or as a friend, you know. I'm more interested in just being with people. Some people are just so wounded that they are just howling. And part of me... You know, I don't know, I can't say this is always the case, but I think that it's difficult for someone to move until their cry has to be fully heard and received. And I think that some people who are really angry, it's just that no one has really ever fully received their anger. I can't say that that's true across the board, but I know that has been really important for me in my own personal life, you know, in my own anger and frustration and hurts like I've really needed just for someone to receive it but we all know what it's like probably to have people who want to change us or make us feel better or to do something to us and we all perhaps have had an experience even for a moment of someone who could just be with us Uh just as we are and receive us with a hole in our, where we are. Yep. My grandmother was that person for me consistently, you know, she had a huge gift of really receiving people. And when you were with her, you felt like nobody else was important and she didn't try to make you feel better. She was just so interested in what you were experiencing. So I had a great teacher
2: Yeah. I had a conversation with somebody earlier today that's a little bit similar to this, and we were talking about how he sort of knows what the right answer is, you know, whether it be going to see a a, a therapist or a spiritual teacher or just a friend, like, he kind of knows what the right answer is. And I said, well, to me, that's not really the point, right? the point isn't that someone can give me advice that I can't think of myself. The the point is, there's something healing about that connection with another human that helps even if what they turn around and tell me is something I already know, there's still some I always get some benefit in reaching out and and to, to what you said into being
0: heard. So important, right? It's, I feel like that's the one thing that's so lacking in our culture. And as, you know, again, goes back to the parable, you know, the grandfather and the grandson. And wow, how special that is. And I have a friend, Taroni Lodog, who is this incredible integrative medicine physician and person. Mm-hmm. And her first question as a primary care doctor is always, In the first consultation, she says, okay, so let's have a really serious conversation about who are the five people who would drop everything if we needed them to come here to be with you. Uh And I want you to tell me about those people because we're in a web of relationships. But she said what's happening more and more is that people can't even come up with one.
2: It's heartbreaking.
0: They think like, oh, my sister, well, well, I don't know if she would come. Uh And so I think that kind of fracture is what needs the most addressing. And to me, that's what, you know, working with dying people is so amazing. Because I've never met a dying person who said, I'm so glad I closed myself off all those years that isolated myself. And you never hear a dying person say, I'm so glad I buried myself in my work and didn't nurture relationships. I'm so glad you you don't ever hear those things. What you always hear is that it's about relationships and how well they loved and who loved them and who knew that they loved them. You know, it's like, it's so amazing how simple it is, but we're so distracted that we forget what's the most important thing it's extraordinary
2: part of what you do is you train people to be involved in in palliative care how to sit with the dying and i have a question for you related to that around um a good friend of mine is a a nurse and she works in clinical trials for cancer which pretty much means the people that she gets are the people that everything else failed for right right and they're they're given a, a last shot right so a great proportion of those people end up dying. And I know it takes a toll on her. I'm curious just how you would, again, it's, you know, you're not going to teach somebody in three or four minutes, but where would you tell that person to start with finding a way to remain open, to remain caring, and yet not just be a, you know, a basket case about
0: it? It's the critical question, you know, I was talking to one of our board members this morning about the same thing. Like, how can we support these people Mm -hmm. who are off in the field? and doing the work on the ground. And, you know, our center is really based on three things that we feel like have to do with the medicine for that, which is we have study programs, direct care programs. The the third prong is meditation in a sangha. So having a meditation practice in a community. So you know, I don't think that someone has to be Buddhist, but to have a community, you know, where there's some kind of contemplative practice. So what I would encourage everyone to do is to keep learning, keep yourself learning and nurtured in that way, um, to keep training, keep learning new things, and to care. And to me, you know, in modern healthcare as it is at the moment, there's a lot of focus on self-care, right? Yep. And so they often often will tell people like your friend, oh, well, I hope you're doing your self-care. But I think that is a real deprivation because I think my understanding and our center's understanding is that it's just care. There's no self-care because if you're not nourishing yourself, that is going to inform how you care for others. So including ourselves in how we care um, is crucial. And community. I and mean, those three things are, to me, the most important. And they keep us, not perfectly, of course, you know, but we will, I think it really helps us to maintain a sense of resiliency because we feel supported. We have people to turn to. We can keep learning and we can keep really checking with ourselves, like, how are we caring? And so to keep those as alive questions, to me, are part of the recipe of resiliency. And, but I think what's happened so often, and, you know, we train clinicians across the country And what we hear constantly is that people are isolated and that people are stuck. They don't know how to keep learning and that they feel that self-care and care are two different things. So it's like there's a real breakdown. And yet, you know, as there's a wonderful Zen expression that says, you know, fall down seven times, get up eight times. So like, I think we just have to learn to be a bit foolish and to realize that we need each other and we're not going to do it perfectly. And we do the best we can. And we need to stretch a little bit.
2: I love Perfect Bars. I've talked about them before on here, how much I love them, how many of them I've eaten, which is an extraordinary number. But there's not just Perfect Bars. The company, Perfect Snacks, make a variety of products, like protein bars, peanut butter cups, and kids' snack bars. And they're all made with freshly ground nut butter, organic honey, and 20 organic superfoods. You're sure to find something that you'll love. Of course, my favorite is the standard Perfect Bar, dark chocolate, Chip peanut butter, although their peanut butter cups are amazing too, and you keep them in the fridge and so they're cold. If you're not already convinced they're also non-GMO project verified, they're gluten-free, they're soy free, they're kosher, and they're low GI and they are delicious. So right now, Perfect Snacks is offering 15% off your online order. Just go to perfectsnacks.com slash wolf. Shop their refrigerated snacks at perfect snacks.com slash wolf today to get 15% off your order. We want you to be prepared for snack time. So go to perfectsnacks.com slash wolf to stock up and save 15%. For people that are outside of the Zen tradition, can you point to the relationship between a meditation practice and being able to care for sick and dying people better? Can you connect those dots for people who may not have the perspective on
0: that? So for us, when we started our center, we came up with the term contemplative care. Um, so the contemplative care is given by someone who has a contemplative practice, and that may be a yoga practice, a prayer practice, a walking in nature practice, whatever it is, hopefully that has some kind of community in it, and that they see their caring as a practice that they're trying to learn how to show up for. So even if it's a physician it, with a, who has an average three-minute visit, how they embody themselves in those three minutes, so they're using their contemplative practice as a way of like staying with their breath, staying open and receptive. To me, it's all a practice of generosity, like learning how to practice generosity, which is giving and receiving freely. And so that is an encounter in a relationship, like in the parable, or with uh, a nurse, with a patient, or with myself and my favorite barista at Starbucks. Now it's about how do you show up in relationship.
2: At one point, I hear you say that at, you say at the Zen Center, we start with three important teachings for service beginner's mind, witnessing, and loving action. Can you kind of walk me through those three and, and frame that up sort of in terms of what we've been talking about?
0: So, beginner's mind is easy to say and challenging to do. <laughs> it means that I know it sounds good. Yes. But it's this experience when we're not, you know, dragging all of our big black bag, as Robert Bly says, you know, into the room. We're actually not having a toolbox, which we'll end up tripping over. We're trying to practice, like, coming back to our breath in our belly, having a soft belly and an open shoulders and almost, like, transparent torso, this ability just to like really be rooted in yourself so that you can really look at and listen to with your whole body what's happening so the beginner's mind is that you're not trying to be an expert because you've never been in that situation before ever and neither has the other person but we tend to make a lot of assumptions and fill up the space for me it's beginner's mind and also an a very quick story that I love very much about it. Is a Western academic professor went to see a Zen teacher in Japan, and he wanted to know all about Zen. And the teacher said, oh, let's have some tea. And while there, the Zen teacher was serving tea, the professor kept asking lots of questions about what is everything? What is that? And the Zen teacher kept pouring the tea until they overflowed the cup and was pouring all over the table. And the guy was saying, like, what are you doing? You're crazy. And the Zen teacher said, no, that's your mind. There's no space. Everything overflowing, no room for anything fresh. Yep. So beginner's mind is that kind of not so full cup. Yeah, yeah,
2: I love that story.
0: You know, once we can cultivate that, you know, which is a constant cultivation, we can bear witness to what's happening. Really take in like, wow, check out what's happening in this room. There are flowers or the person looks like they're wincing in pain or the homeless man on the street. Now, how is he doing today? You know, that we can actually arrive where we are. And to me, that's bearing witness is to also bear it, to also receive the joys and sorrows. And it's intrinsic to compassion, to really bear it. I think we have to first bear it. And if we can do that, then we can actually do loving action, which is the third part of our work, which is to be loving flows from compassion. So it flows from compassionate action, like what actually is needed here or like the story of the woman on the oncology floor. You know, wow. I think what was most compassionate is that she just needs someone to stay. She's testing. What I was able to see when I was bearing witness to her was that she was testing who's going to stay and really hear her. And so, to me, the loving action in that case looked like staying and being curious about her sorrow and anger.
2: I've heard you use the term operationalized meditation. (laughs) I don't know if you just made that up one time on another interview or that's the term you actually use, but I heard it and I thought it was interesting. So, now you get to explain it.
0: (laughs) Well, that comes from the chaplaincy world where they talk about operationalizing your spirituality. And to me, what that means is how do you put it into action? So for example, in Zen meditation, we focus on a place called the Arhara, which is about two inches below our belly button. And we focus on our attention there. So it's a great way of using concentration and spaciousness and so, when you operationalize that, so you you sit on the cushion with that awareness. But then, what about when you're in a relationship, or you get off the cushion and you go on the street, and someone falls in front of you? How do you return to the place that's soft and grounded in yourself? How do you operationalize that practice so that you can actually use it in relationship? Because to me, the beauty of any kind of spiritual practice is how does it help you become more intimate with who is in front of you, including yourself?
2: Excellent. Well, I think that is a great place to wrap up. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on. It's been a great conversation, and, and thank you for the work that you do.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Okay, take
2: care. Bye. All right, bye.
1: If what you just heard was helpful to you, please consider making a donation to the One You Feed podcast. Head over to oneyoufeed.net slash support. You can learn more about Sensei Koshin Paley Allison
0: and this podcast at oneyoufeed.net slash koshin.